Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. All right, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome here this morning. Good to see each of you here um, joining us for another uh, talk on Strength to Strength. Our purpose here at Strength to Strength is to advance Jesus' kingdom by tackling thought-provoking topics and uh, by stimulating candid discussions and by sharing faith-building testimonies. So we're glad to welcome this morning um, Kyle Stolzfus on the topic of a proper theology of the body. Uh, he comes to us from Guy's Mills, Pennsylvania, and uh, we're excited to have you here with us, Kyle, to uh, share on this uh, very important topic. I, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing it. So we'll start with a word of prayer, and then I'll hand it over to you, Kyle. You can give a brief introduction of yourself and uh, what you're doing there and that part of Pennsylvania, and uh, head right into it. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity um, early this Saturday morning again to uh, sit together like this and to um, study uh, what you have for us. And uh, thank you for bringing Kyle here to the platform and bless him as he uh, speaks for us and speaks to us and gives us um, teaching on the proper theology of our bodies and help us, Lord, to to truly learn what we need to learn and to uh, apply the truth to our lives and to our walk with you so that we can be God-honoring and God-fearing through all of our actions and uh, everything we do and say. Lord, help us to be faithful witnesses of you as we walk on this earth. Help us to truly be the hands and feet of Jesus, the example of Christ, the uh, the picture of God that the world may see, and uh, that we could remove the blemishes, and that we could uh, truly be um, uh, wonderful and good ambassadors for you and your kingdom. Pray that you would bless this meeting and uh, this recording as it goes out, and all who participate. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. All yours, Kyle. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Good morning. Uh, like Justin mentioned, my name is Kyle Stoltzfus, and um, <clears throat> I am the, the husband of one wife. Her name is Marlene, and we have uh, four delightful children together. Um, I, I work at Faith Builders. That's most of what I do. Uh, I'm the academic dean at the Institute, which means I get to read lots of books and uh, recommend them to others. Um, in addition to that, I'm a pastor at uh, nearby Shalom Mennonite Church. Um, <clears throat> I think, I guess I just mentioned as well, you know, in addition to those kinds of heady sorts of things, I'm, I'm also the sort of person who uh, who enjoys splitting firewood. We burn a lot of wood. Um, <clears throat> I once in a while, you know, get to get outside and I enjoy hiking not quite as much as I wish I could. Um, so anyway, that's that's just a little tiny bit about me. I, I agree that uh, the theology of the body, I think it's something that we need to be talking about these days. There's there's a lot of questions about what our bodies are for, 
and uh, what kind of what kinds of things we can claim and say about our bodies. And it, if if we don't have as Christians ways to to sort out legitimate claims about our bodies versus illegitimate claims. In other words, if we can't say or understand what does God say about our bodies, um, we're we're going to be in for for some difficult times. So here's just a little preview of where I'm going. Uh, I'm going to be uh, promoting, unabashedly promoting, a picture of what God has for our human bodies, which is not body optional. Uh, so it might feel like my approach here is just a little bit, you know, I say oblique, but if, if this picture that I'm painting is a biblical picture, if it's the true picture, we can't get around the reality that our bodies are not, that our bodies are not somehow optional to what it means to be a human being. It's going to be at the core of what I'm suggesting. Uh, but I'd like to, I'd like to begin by looping you all in. If you can get the chat window open here. Uh, I'm just going to ask for just a chain of quick responses. And this is the question that, that I'm going to be responding to and developing around. Uh, I'll just begin with it here. And the question is this. What does your physical body have to do with your relationship to God? Think about that just for a moment and then just go ahead and put some things out on the chat. <clears throat> the question again. What does your physical body have to do with your relationship to God. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you. This is, this is a, um, oh, okay. I see there's some people only with audio. That's helpful. Um, I'm seeing the temple of God. It's how we experience God with our senses. Sight, sound, touch, thought, work, giving, center of relationships. Temple comes up a number of times. Temple of the Holy Ghost. Visible part of being made in his image. We're jumping off of that one. Can't worship God without my brain. <laughs> there we go. It's a visible part of being made in his image. Hey, it's interesting. Um, that language of image is, is going to be central to, to how, to, to the direction that we're going this morning. So, uh, keep, keep that chat open if you want to. We'll be returning to this question. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that as we go, we're going to add more and more layers. Okay. To what, what it could mean. Uh, to have a physical body that's in relationship to God. But before that, I want to back up um, just to do a little bit of groundwork with Plato. Uh, Plato, in his uh, Phaedo, this is 400 BC, uh, he shuns the body because of how it, it, it attaches us to the material world. Uh, to Plato, bodies are limited, they're needy, they're fragile, imperfect, and they're aging. That's all true. Uh, but souls, in contrast to Plato, are timeless, eternal, and they bring us into contact with truth. The way Plato says it, and here I'm quoting him, as long as we have a body and our soul is fused with such an evil, we shall never adequately attain to what we desire, which we affirm to be truth. If we are to have pure knowledge, we must escape from the body and observe matters in themselves with the soul by itself. So for for him, uh, this happens in life, this cultivating pure knowledge that he wants happens in life as we cultivate detachment from our bodies, 
And in death, when the soul is finally released from the frailty of the body in the messy physical world. And I think it's, I think we have to, we have to say, you know, it's easy to understand the attraction of this. It's easy to understand why it's attractive to leave behind frailty and limitation and get beyond that to certainty or knowledge to truth, what Plato says. Uh, and if you go this direction, you'd better not love the physical very much because it's constantly changing. It's constantly passing, right? Um, moving on from uh, Plato just a little bit to Philo, this, this is a uh, Jewish interpreter of scripture and uh, he had some, had some influence on the early church, especially. Uh, he's just writing around 30 BC and he's reflecting on Genesis 1 and 2. He says, Moses says that man is made in the image and likeness of God. Let no one think he is able to judge from this likeness, judge of this likeness from the characters of the body. For neither is God a being with the form of man, nor is a human body like the form of God. True enough, but the resemblance is spoken of with reference to the most important part of the soul, namely the mind. Okay? So, so Philo here, he doesn't go so far as Plato in calling the body evil. He doesn't really see the body as a barrier, but he does give a clear priority to the soul, the rational part. If you want to understand what the image of God is, he suggests, look at the soul, not the body. And he's got a point. God doesn't have hands, well, except through the incarnation, right? But he, he doesn't have a body like we do. At the same time, there's there's some problems with this, and I'll push around on that. So what again? What does what does your body have to do with your your physical body have to do with your relationship with God? Yeah, Christians have been dealing with this ever since they've been Christians, and, and an early challenge to Christians, drawing from Greek thinking mostly, uh, presented the answer of this: nothing. They thought they had. Nothing to do with your relationship with God. So you can abuse it. Do with it what you want. And that's because the idea of the soul's escape to a disembodied, ghostly existence is so attractive. But but it needs to be resisted. Well, why? Because when it comes to relationship with God, here's my thesis statement, you might say, because when it comes to relationship with God, human bodies are not the problem. If they were, then the eternal Son of God, the Word, would not have become flesh and dwelt among us. And he wouldn't have taken his body with him in his ascension. So those aren't the problems. It's not the physical body that's the problem. Maybe maybe another way to say this is like this. When it comes to bodies, the whole movement of the Christian faith is not about the transportation of our souls as some kind of disembodied existence. It's about the transformation of our bodies to become more real, more substantive, uh, more fully representative of Christ's body on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's the whole direction of the Christian faith. Now, I'm going to get more specific. <clears throat> And make my case. 
the image of God. The image of God is is where we're going this morning. This has been um, this has been at the center of how Christians for thousands of years have understood what it means to be a human. Uh, read in Genesis one and two about God, the, the Creator, and He's creating the world, and then there's this startling statement about who we are as human beings. That is that we're God's image, and that that needs to startle us because. Here's the creator of the universe, and then suddenly the statement, oh, uh, male and female, and they're, and they're made in the image of God. We first encounter it in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female, he created them. And this language, this paradigm of, of people, of male and female, of us being in the image of God, it develops through the Bible until Jesus Christ shows us fully and completely what it's all about. So let's have a little bit of a clue for looks here. Many commentators, ancient and modern, they point out that uh, the first creation story, the one in Genesis 1 through about uh, 2, 7, 2, 3, that is, it focuses on the big picture of God's creation, and the second zooms in a little bit more closely to the creation of humankind. And together, they give us this whole picture of the world, why God created it, and why he puts us in the world. He structures the creation so that humans are drawn into the possibility of imaging God, that is, of making him visible with their bodies. So, let's take the first section. This is reflecting on Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. The helpful way to see this here is that um, in this passage, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, God is building his temple. He's building a place where worshiping will happen, where humans will flourish. That's a temple. A temple It's made with patterns of material and presence which will guide humans to flourishing worship. I'll name just a few of those here. Uh, there's light and there's darkness. In this temple that God's creating, there's going to be days and nights to chronicle time. There's lifetimes. There's going to be generations. There's going to be moments, hours, months, years, seasons, times, ages, Epochs, there's going to be sickness and health, celebrations and laments. All of that packed into day and night time. There's going to be plant life for agriculture, sowing, harvesting, reaping. There's living animals, creatures, for husbandry and variety and beauty too, I think. Dry lands to inspire all and to give material for creativity and movement. God is, again, building a temple. It's a place where true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth, where they offer their bodies as, in Paul's language, they offer their bodies as living sacrifices. Just a quick illustration here. In Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, God is, he's, it's like he's throwing a party. And, um, if, if we were throwing a party, 
we wouldn't have the guests arrive first and then make the food. When a country is hosting the Olympics, they don't wait until all the competitors and guests arrive to build the Olympic Village, the stadiums, the plan, the menu to, to meticulously craft the program. All of those things come first. And then come the competitors and the guests. And here, the creator is, and he's like a certain man who's preparing a great banquet. He's setting the table. He's proposed an Olympics. He's providing everything that humankind will need so that when he brings them into the world, they're going to find ready a feast of thanks, an arena for worship. It's an arena of time and of energy of illumination and rivers of sea and plants and animals and minerals. It's the raw material of thanks and creativity. That is, again, don't miss this, he's building the temple. But he's also more than the temple, this creator God is. He's not the same as the temple. He wants to build it but he doesn't need it. So why does he build it? Well, I think the temple is for us. We move to the second part of the story. Genesis 2, 4 to 25. And this zooms in more closely on us, God's images. And already in Genesis um, 1.27, we realize that there's something special about us humans, right? Uh, we, we get to bear God's image. Remember, in the image of God created he, him. It's hard to overstate how, how important of a claim that is. But what's going on here? Um, and here, just a quick aside... I, I remember this was, uh, in, in my graduate work, I was just getting started. And, uh, in, in something I wrote, I just kind of offhandedly quickly scrawled something in about the image of God. And, and just, I failed, I failed to define it. And, and my professor, he was a professor of church history. He scratched in the margins for me, something kind of like this. He said, unless you're willing to clarify what you mean by the image of God, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Just because people have gone in different directions. People have gone in different directions about what the image is. And it's, 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 um, it's okay to do that. There are a lot loaded in here. What does it mean to be in God's image? Just suggesting there's different ways to approach this. Some, Ways of talking about the image, like Philo, they uh, they prioritize some kind of interior aspect. Other ways prioritize an exterior aspect of what it means to be in the image. I don't think these ways of looking at it are in competition to each other, but I will suggest that when we focus too much on the interior parts of what it means to be in the image, we can begin to see our bodies as optional, and that can become a problem especially these days. So instead of talking about the interior parts of the image, which we could talk about maybe some other time, uh, I'm going to go this direction. I'm going to suggest that if we lived in biblical times, 
we'd have a fairly concrete understanding of what the image of God meant. And that's this. The image of God is the way in which God makes himself visible in the world. Okay? The image of God is the way in which God makes himself visible in the world. Here's why I think that. Um, nearly, nearly everyone who lived during the times when these passages were written, uh, they lived under the rule of a king. <clears throat> and kings claimed to be God's image, God's physical representative on earth. He was the way that his God made himself visible in the world. And he extended the presence and the character of his God into the world as his representative. Sometimes, uh, in addition to the king, who is being God's representative, there would be an image, maybe of wood or of stone or, or something like that, that would be carved and it would be set in the temple. Now, the God of Israel, he builds his temple and he forbids image making. He forget, forbids carving something out of wood or stone and putting that in the temple. And, and, and he forbids seeing the king as the image of God. Why does he do that? Well, uh, for one, because limited things, right, like kings or objects in temples, they can't contain the God of Israel. God exceeds all of those things. He's already made that much clear. God built the temple, remember, but he's more than the temple. But here's the really incredible thing. In addition, in addition to God being uncontained by his creation, it's because the God of Israel invested in his image, he invested his image and in his image bearers the privilege and the obligation of worshiping in his worldwide temple. That is, he's, he's given them the privilege and the obligation of making him visible, extending his character and presence into the entire world. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living worship. This is, after all, your reasonable service when you're serving a global God, right? Now, <clears throat> let's take up our gains and I'll pause for a little bit. I don't want you to miss this. God created his temple. The temple is made of patterns and material and presence which will guide humans to flourishing worship. That's part of what a temple means. And the God of Israel has placed his image into his temple, and it's us. Right? We are the ones who have the privilege and the calling of making God visible in his temple. And this, this way of looking at it makes our bodies important within our generations, our moments, Hours, years, and ages within our joys and laments, our accomplishments, and our monotonies, 
along rivers and expanses and raw material. He's invested in us, his image bearers, the command and the summons to make him visible in the world. And plus, in Genesis uh, 2, especially there's some direction about what this looks like. Have dominion, be fruitful, multiply, uh, cultivating the world, bringing it to fruition, while at the same time bringing about human flourishing. And I think, briefly, this is part of the good news of Genesis. God wants you to represent him in his temple. Just going to hit pause there for a moment, take a look at what the chat is saying by now, and you can consider too, what more could we say, what more could we say by this point about what our bodies have to do with our relationship with God? Glenn asks, so we could not be an image bearer of God if we didn't have our bodies. Correct? <laughs> um, could we bear God's image if we didn't have our bodies? Well, it depends a little bit which direction you take it. If, if all you're focused on is some kind of rationality, um, I'll just say in my experience that when you remove somebody's rationality from their body, We'd call that dead. Um, that would no longer bear God's image very well. That would now be a dead body. So I would tend to say to the question, depending which direction you take it, don't take this wrong, please. But as far as our experience goes, as, as human creation, yes, I think that's correct. Could there be something that God would do with us that would go another direction? Well, possibly, but that, that, that's not the biblical testimony and certainly not my experience. <clears throat> Okay, let's keep on going. I, I wouldn't be giving you a full picture here if we didn't move ahead because we don't totally understand what it means to make God visible in the world until God himself becomes visible in the world. So we, we keep on catapulting forward here. There's uh, Noah and Abraham, Joseph, uh, Moses, <clears throat> and then we march alongside Israel. Um, and his people... His people, they're, they're, they're called into this, in, this incredible calling to make God visible in the world. And, and the, 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 their response is kind of mixed. You know, there's, there's faithfulness sometimes and other times there's unfaithfulness. Uh, um, finally, they're in captivity. They're in exile in the later prophets, but God is determined. God is faithful. He will have his image bearer. He, he will have it. There's expectation in the air, and, and then comes Jesus. And though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Or, like John puts it, the word became flesh. And he arrives and he takes the patterns and the material and the presence which form God's temple and he offers a symptom of thanks and praise and sacrifice. In other words, he makes God visible. He extends God's character into light and dark places. Healings, casting out demons. There's water into wine. There's death 
and resurrection. He is God's physical representation on earth, God's image. And he's everything. He's everything that was anticipated in Genesis, everything hoped for in God's people. So, Colossians 1.15 here, Paul just exalts over him. He, he writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. I can't help but point that out there. There's Adam, right? The first Adam, set in the garden as an image bearer. But here Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So chronologically, a little bit later, yes. But as far as his image bearing capacity, superior, right? And therefore, the firstborn, the first created, the true image bearer. Colossians 2.9, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul doesn't try to figure that all out for us. Deity and a body. <laughs> you know, eternal in the temporal. He just puts it out there for us. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That is Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Imprint being a word that runs pretty closely alongside image. Take Psalm 40 or Hebrews 10, 5, sacrifice and offering that you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. So I'll make an observation and then I'll suggest some response for us. The observation is just this. Jesus, the word, Jesus, the fullness of God, uh, Jesus, the exact imprint of God, he, he does not reject our bodies as God's human creation doesn't reject our bodies. So again, when it comes to relationship with God, human bodies are not the problem. Instead, he glorifies his human body, and it becomes more real, more substantive, more fully representative of God's will in heaven being worked out on earth. And and this is part of what John means. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we had seen his glory. It's more fully alive. It's just more fully representative of God, what God wants. And when you notice that pattern, when you say, this is fully what God wants, that's glory. That's bringing God the praise, the sacrifice that's actually due who he is. And to do this again, Jesus didn't diminish his human body. He goes to great lengths to show us that he has a body, a physical body, even after his resurrection. See the imprints? Look, I'm eating with you. This is a physical body. And in his ascension, this one I, I can't I can't explain this to you, but the the, the church has almost uniformly agreed in Christ's ascension. He takes his body with him. 
There it is, on the right hand of the Father, a human body. He does not diminish our human bodies, he glorifies them. What's our response to this? It's really something, it's pretty dramatic. God comes, he takes the form of a human body, and he takes that human body with him. What does that have to do with us? Well, well, Paul tells us that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We image the image. Those of us in Christ are destined to glorify God in God's temple, that is the world, just like Christ did. So Jesus gives us a vision of what fullness and flourishing and worship look like. So you and I, we're we're not allowed to despise the limits of our bodies, which are real. We're not allowed to despise the limits of our bodies by dissolving them into some kind of shapeless and ghostly existence, some kind of shapeless and bloodless ideas or visions or values. They must always resolve in ways that make Jesus visible. Faith, hope. Love, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice how effortlessly Paul holds that together. Spiritual worship, bodies. These are wandering off in opposite directions. And our final worship, our final worship is our death. Except a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. It abides alone. We give our bodies up, be sown into the ground, but our bodies, like the body of Jesus, are not abandoned. We will be giving imperishable, invulnerable, invincible bodies fully alive to God's glory. We don't know exactly what that looks like. We're giving hints of it, um, except that we know, like Christ was raised, we'll be raised too. Okay, that is a gaspingly quick tour of the entire biblical story of bearing God's image uh, in our bodies of what it means to be placed in God's temple as God's physical representative. I can return again to that question here. Now, now, what does your physical body have to do with your relationship with God? Or if you would like to ask for any clarifications, um, ask any questions at this point, you're welcome to now. Kyle, can I ask something? Absolutely, Patrick. Lowbrow Patrick, here I come. If the spirit is eternal and our body is temporary, this vessel we should focus on the spirit via through the mind. Deny the body and focus on the values of our king through building up our soul or our spirit. That's essentially what you said. <laughs> you packed a lot in there. You packed a lot in there. Um, I'm not as lowbrow as people think. No, I don't think so. That could be for number two. And I'll say, yeah. 
Um, I mean, our body is the place where the eternal, just like Jesus, our body is the place where the eternal comes into contact with the physical. It's, it's that, that's that place. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to privilege one over the other. And yet at the same time, if I'm hearing you right, you're suggesting we, we should be focusing on the cultivation of our soul. Is that right? Okay. I, I would, I would just suggest this. Don't forget that your body is not an optional add-on for the cultivation of your soul. Like, I'm not sure how I would cultivate my soul without the use of my senses. I'm not sure how I would cultivate my soul without, uh, uh without uh, making, making good patterns of life without establishing habits and routines and without interacting with people. So I, I can't, I can't imagine a way to cultivate my soul without my body. So this goes beyond, it's something else I'm thinking about. The culture, you know, this is the thing, the culture of the Anabaptist people is a practice of cultivating the body and the mind together. Yeah. I'm doing that loosely because there's a lot of interpretations of the culture. Yeah. And I hear you. And I think there's something to that. <clears throat> A question here, what my thoughts about uh, our diet in the relationship that we are in physical image of God. Um, so if I'm hearing you right here, John, our bodies tend to do better if, if we, if we take care of them. Uh, if, if we are, if we're managing our diet, does that have something to do with our relationship with God? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't, I don't think that I don't think that God means for us to use something that he called good in ways that degrade it in the same way that um, I think it would be even simpler, say, if we would if we would uh, if we would look at it at an animal that God created good, it's a physical being. We wouldn't we wouldn't give it a poor diet. Right. So I, I don't think we should do the same things to ourselves as his image bearers. Does our diet have something to do with our relationship with God? I should say, I, I think possibly it could. That's an interesting question. Just in comments, if our bodies and our whole life represent God in his image, we have a full-time job, so to speak, to keep working on this image so that it properly points to the image of God without degrading his character. Really well said, Justin. Yes. If our bodies is a full-time job, we don't just get time off where, say, I'm an image bearer now. This is not temple time, and over here, this is my temple time where I actually image God and make him visible. Yeah, that's getting it. Okay, I recognize here that it's already 6.40. I had outlined five theses, five statements kind of springing off of this theological model of being in God's temple. Um, We don't have time for five. It's it was a little bit ridiculous to think we would. Um, I'm going to trot five of these things out, and then this is going to be like a pool. I would like to hear from you in the order, uh, the order that you find most helpful, and then maybe we can do one more. Does that sound okay? I think some agreement. Thank you. So I'm just going to trot these out. 
And you can listen and um, and see which of them sounds the most interesting. But this is also just for my interest, too. I want to know what you find most interesting. Um, the first is this. Five theses for a Christian body. The first is this, that a Christian body is a necessary part of the Christian body, or Christian gospel, that is. A Christian body is a necessary part of the Christian gospel, not an optional add. Okay. Second, a Christian body is a mortal body. That meaning it's limited. It will die. Third, Christians know with their bodies. We know with our bodies. Third, or fourth rather, a Christian body is a sexual body. Or fifth, the Christian body is Christ's body. And that one gets us a little bit closer to the redemption of our bodies, but also uh, gets us in touch with what it means to be God's body, Christ's body here on earth right now. So, which of those would you like to have addressed in the minutes that we have here with us? Thanks, Glenn. And if you can, again, put them out in order, meaning them all, just so I have a, an assignment clearly. A priority here. Two votes for number one, a Christian body is a necessary part of the Christian gospel. Mortality, also of interest. Knowing. Eh? This isn't going to be easy. Anybody else? One and two. One. Our body and the church's body, good. One and three, thank you. Five, three, two, one, four. Oh dear. I'm not, I'm not a whiz of statistics here, right? One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> Okay, how about we start, how about we start with number one? I'm not seeing one clearly pulling ahead here. Christian body is a necessary witness. That is, it is a necessary part of the Christian gospel, not an optional add-on. Okay. We'll start with that one. Now, I, I mentioned, uh, right at the onset, we quoted Plato a little bit and then Philo. Uh, Christians, Christians have always had to wrestle with views that made bodies optional or maybe even nipple. Uh, then this happened very, very early in the Christian tradition. You have folks in, uh, 
but the, the apostles say in First John, Paul as well, he has to address some of the the early uh, the early expressions of what would later on become known as Gnosticism, that is body rejecting, matter rejecting, world rejecting. Um, and some of these folks that uh, John and Paul had to address, they claimed that Jesus did not really have a body. Uh, he only appeared to have a body. And uh, Ambrose, early Christian writer, he asked, are they Christians or do they only appear to be Christians in response to those folks? They didn't mince words quite so much. <laughs> um, so to be sure, to be sure, our bodies are inconvenient, right? Our bodies are inconvenient. It'd be far easier to think we could spread the gospel just by spreading ideas. But for Christians who take our cues from the incarnation, remember, the word became flesh. Heaven is brought to earth. The invisible God is made visible in a human body. First in Christ and also in us, his body. Maximus the Confessor, um, writing a little bit later than Ambrose, and he says it like this, God wills always and in all things to accomplish the mystery of his embodiment. Fascinating way to say it. God wills in Oh, God wills always and in all things to accomplish the mystery of his embodiment. Okay? And this needs to guide, I think if this is true, this needs to guide how we think about doing God's work in the world. Okay, our mission. Is our mission, is our witness to Christ, is it body optional? Or is it body necessary? And Christians have a bad habit. Christians have a bad habit of being body optional. A bodiless gospel about forgiveness, about something happening on God's end of the deal that makes us okay, or I'll put a slender jab in here, our bodiless presentations, right? Bloodless digital streams and banter about mission and values or revelation or revolution or podcasts, you know, the, the word became binary and was included among us. Big ideas, big platforms, sweeping certainties and generalization. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. We have to ask to, to these things, do these missions, do these gospels have a body, or do they only appear to have a body? They must always resolve in ways which make Jesus visible. And yet we have to acknowledge that this is inconvenient for us. Part of what it means to be one of God's creatures, not a god. A student, a student pointed out from First John, when we were working at the passage, I think it was First John 2, um, we were working at the passage a little bit, and he pointed out, I think it's pretty perceptive, 
that one of the reasons we can learn to despise our bodies is because they place obligations on us. Uh, the real, real love, First John is emphatic on this, real love holds body and love together. Love encompasses our sense of duty. We, we see, we see what God is revealing in another person. We see what God is revealing in some kind of encounter or a situation. And, and we say, Oh, um, that requires something of me. I will do it. That, that's how love takes form. It requires a body. It senses an obligation and it responds to it. So our bodies, they hold us to the local. The specific, the encounter, do justice now, love, mercy, now. The kingdom of God is among us. I don't go looking for it. Here it is. Not there, not there. Not future, not past, present. Increase, increase when it comes is a gift from the Father. Creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. But to, just to summarize this and make sure you get it, is our is our presentation of the gospel, is our sense of mission, is it body optional or is it body necessary? And, and I'm suggesting that when we respond to the incarnation, inevitably we're driven toward the specific. We're driven toward things like obligation. We're driven toward... Uh, the present as being the place where if we're patient, if we're willing to attend carefully and with joy, that's where the kingdom of God is going to break out. I'll um, mention a story here yet on this one. Then I've got a couple of books, too, that I might recommend. Oh, there, there again. This is this is going back to my uh, my experience. You know, when I was studying church history and theology, there was most really unexpected encounter that I had once with a. Um, <laughs> he was a bishop, not 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 from the Anabaptist tradition. He was an Anglican bishop, and he he was a very very high church bishop. That is, uh, he, he always wore his robes. He always had his vestments on. He wanted to be known as a bishop. And um, one of the stories that he told was about how his church had grown, which was this, a kind of ratty little suburb in Pittsburgh somewhere. And the church was very small that he was he was told to go minister at. Um. <clears throat> And it, and it looked pretty challenging. It looked pretty daunting to have those 15 or 20 people. They looked like the church was dying. Uh, he sometimes wondered if maybe he was sent, he was sent to this church with the mission just to help it to die gracefully. But he, he got there and, and his way, his way of going on mission for this church, this little church was just to start walking around the neighborhood. He divided the neighborhood up into sections, and every day he would walk through one of the sections of this neighborhood in full vestments, right? All of his garb was on, and he was just present. He was just present 
he would talk to people. He would, he would strike up relationships with them. And then even though initially there was a little bit of standoffish, like, why is this guy walking around looking like a priest? Um, it's because he was, he was bringing God's presence into this neighborhood. He was in God's temple and he was being God's image, making God visible in some way. And he had a lot of dignity to him. It was kind of unlikely in this little Pittsburgh neighborhood, but, but over time, over time, just that persistent, faithful presence, it, it turned that church around. And for whatever the numbers matter, you know, went from 15 to 20, and, 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 and the last he knew it was over 250 people at this church. How did that mission happen? Presence. Determined presence, right? So this is one way to think about mission. Are we resolving toward love, hope, presence, um, or is it just about the big ideas? Two, well, three books I'll mention. Uh, here's one that's been helpful to me to change the world. Don't think everything in here is okay necessarily, but I can recommend it in the title. There's Mark Sayers. This is a more recent one. It's interesting, uh, the direction that Sayers in a non-anxious presence is going. Talks about all the anxiety of our age. There's a lot of anxiety out there right now in Christianity. And he sees the, the church moving forward and growing and developing through non-anxious presence. But there's not a shortcut there. You've got to be present. Um, Another one I might mention, Jeffrey Bilbro, Reading the Times, also emphasizes being present, being attentive, paying attention to what God is doing in the present, not just the, the more anxious possibilities in our minds. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that is my effort there, at least talking about a body-necessary gospel. We have the privilege and the obligation of making God visible in the world of extending his presence. And I consider that to be pretty good news, too. I'm going to stop with that. And uh, Justin, when you're ready, feel free to jump in. All right. Well, thank you very much. I uh, really enjoyed this session. Um, it's it's uh, down to earth and where the rubber hits the road. And, uh, yeah, had a lot of, um, truth that you, uh, represented it here that was, uh, um, good for me to think about. Um, <clears throat> I'm fascinated by the, um, early, um, false teaching and you referred to it, Gnosticism. And then also it's, it's sort of connection to modern day um gnosticism which i would feel would be the uh calvinist type of ideology where the body is utterly depraved there's really nothing you can do about it um just live with it um kind of the idea that the body is an unnecessary is a sort of a necessary evil that kind of tags along and uh is there a reason why satan um, is early and persistent in this kind of thinking hmm. and uh, ideology that the body needs to be cut separate, divorced from the spirit of man. And uh, why would he be so interested in doing that? Well, I'm curious if anybody else wants to respond to that. 
it, it is, I mean, it is interesting how Gnosticism predates Christianity, but, um, it is, it's, it's a little terrifying how quickly, uh, the Gnostic gospel begins to co-opt the Christian gospel and how forcefully and decisively and quickly the apostles need to respond to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. And, and it starts to, it's the, the message starts to change. The apostles are quick to respond. And the, and the Christian church has always had to, has always had to wrestle with that. I guess it seems like in response to your question, why? Um, it seems like Satan hates incarnation. Um, if, if heaven is going to come to earth and be bound to a particular location, he doesn't want to see that. And he's going to do whatever he can to disrupt and deny that. Um, that's not super profound, but there's, there's got to be richer reasons there than that, other than that God, Satan hates incarnation. <clears throat> no, I think you answered it very well. And, and, uh, it seems obvious that the redemption of the body, um, showing the resurrection power of Christ on earth to others, has a dramatic effect in, in the, re- in the spreading of the gospel and, and, uh, it's a direct defeat to Satan and his agenda. So yeah, thanks for this whole talk. And so yeah, I'll open it up now to anybody. Just throw your questions at Kyle or, or comments. Um, feel free. Let's have some discussion here before we wrap this up. see a question there, Larry Shirk. So we say that our soul is saved when we profess faith, when we confess faith in Jesus, but our bodies will not be saved until the Lord returns redeem, returns to redeem creation. Is this a correct view of salvation and our body? Um, well, yes and no, I think. Uh, our soul is, is saved. It's also being saved, right? There's nothing necessarily inherently good about our souls. And there's, I would at least suggest, Justin, that's something that Calvin, Calvin, um, he did have a kind of a, a corrupted view of our bodies, but also our souls. <laughs> there wasn't anything good. It was total depravity. Soul, spirit, body, all of the depraved, right? Um, there's problems with that, but there, but there isn't something pristine necessarily about our souls that God just, oh yeah, that's in and it's your bodies that I'm questioning soul and body both need redemption soul and body both will be redeemed and in this process of being redeemed God is going to be working with both for their full redemption and glorification later but also I think increasingly in some ways I don't quite understand this with our bodies but incorruptibility is being worked into them in the present as well. But I wouldn't want to see them go in different directions. I don't know, Larry, do you want to come back at that? You're you're muted there. Just hit the unmute button. <clears throat> no, um, thank you for, for sharing that. Just I, I've been thinking a lot recently about you know, our, our spiritual formation and how, how our body, yeah, our spiritual primacies form our soul, yeah, and just the connection between that. And, and I like, 
I wake people up there that are stolen some more necessarily. And they're not necessarily pressed to you, like we said. Basically, we work together. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the ideal. I think, um, at least in a Christian view of if soul and body start to drift apart from each other, that's not, that's not seen like Plato as, as a good thing. Where finally our souls can be loosed from our bodies. In a Christian mind, that's, that's, you're dying. <laughs> if that happens, that the two are drifting apart because the soul is always going to be expressing itself through the body, but also the soul is patterning after the mind in some ways. Um, Irenaeus, writing as a second century Christian, he gives this picture I found interesting where it's, it's like the two, uh, the, the soul bears the impression, like the mold form of the body. So even if in the intermediate state, when it seems like we won't have bodies between our death and our resurrection in Christ, we don't totally understand this all, but it seems like we won't have bodies. There's still a shape. <laughs> There's still a form to our souls that, that's just, it's just aching for the form of its body to return to it. Okay. That's, that's a Christian view where a, a, a bodiless soul is still waiting for and conformed to its body, even if it hasn't received its resurrected body yet. And that's the closest he got to describing that relationship. I think it's an interesting picture. All right. Well, it is four minutes after seven and, uh, probably some of us have some things we need to be moving on to. So I think we'll wrap it up. Um, thank you again, Kyle, for coming on here and sharing this with us. It was very, uh, very inspirational again. And, uh, maybe look forward to hearing more from you at a future time. Um, so why don't we, uh, get you to lead us in a closing prayer and, uh, then we will close the meeting. Yes, happy to. Let's pray. Father God, we have out ahead of us today um, tasks that we've outlined, things that we know, many things we don't know. I pray for this group of men that as they enter your temple today, that is your world, as they enter uh, the spaces that you have for them, the encounters, as they encounter their children and their wives, their neighbors and strangers, that they would give these people, Lord, the attention and care and love that your image bearers would, that your son, your image would, and that your kingdom today will come, that your will will be done through our bodies on earth like it is in heaven. That's your wish, and we wish today to... Uh, to fulfill the mystery of your incarnation in some small way in our bodies. I ask this through Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, that concludes uh, today's uh, talk and time together. Um, in two weeks, we have on our schedule a talk titled Kingdom Journey with Vision for Growth by Micah Hassan. And, but keep your, keep your eyes peeled for notifications. We may throw in a bonus talk at any point. And, uh, so yeah, we look forward to seeing you all again. Again, thanks again, everyone for joining and God bless your day. Yes.
iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.